So let me tell you why last night, the eve of the election there, 2012, if you're a believer, why it was a win-win situation for you. Because ultimately, to quote a line from the psalm that we read this this evening to start the service out, ultimately, and I'm quoting from the line of the psalm itself, it is God who decides, he brings one down, he exalts another. Now, Psalm 75, by the way, is in the context of judging a nation and... um, You know, God will raise up somebody like a Pharaoh, Romans chapter 9 and verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. He can raise up a Pharaoh and he can raise up a Moses at the same time. Uh, From a condemned Hebrew home, from the Nile and a floating refugee and then into the palace and into the arms of Pharaoh's daughter, Exodus 3 and verse 10, I'm raising you up. I'm sending you to Pharaoh's uh, palace to rescue my people. Uh, Now in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 1, the Lord raises up King Saul. He is the one who raises him up. The people want King Saul. This is fine. You can have King Saul. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 1. I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, so listen now to the message from the Lord, Samuel said. He also raises up David. He chose David his servant, took him from the sheep pens, from tending the sheep and brought him to be shepherd of his people Israel. Uh, His inheritance, that's Psalm 78. And so he raises one up, he puts one down, he raises one up, he puts one down. We do our part and God does his. He is sovereign. And if it's one thing that we've learned from the book of Revelation, there's a throne in heaven and it's occupied by an all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God who's good and whose very heart is and first concern is the good of his people. So here's my exhortation. It comes out of Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So while we have Jesus in focus, uh, come on, we have a job to do. We need to man the lifeboats and be light of the world and salt of the earth because our Lord Jesus is closer than when we first believed. Amen? All right, I welcome you back to your seats. Grab your Bibles. First Samuel chapter 23. We'll pick up in verse 1 where we left off at chapter 22 last time. We'll ask the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Your Holy Spirit's here. You always help us to understand your word. These are God-breathed words, and they are spiritually discerned, so we need your help. 
We ask for it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are many ways that the Old Testament characters and incidents foreshadow or point forward in a prophetic way to New Testament fulfillments, especially in the gospel in Jesus uh, and in life as a Christian. Uh, Paul the Apostle, you remember, told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the parting of the Red Sea and God's believers going through that Red Sea was really a literal miracle, but it pointed to Christian baptism. And the bread falling from heaven, the manna, and the water coming from a rock that was uh, struck and therefore bleeding out life-giving water were literal miracles, but they were speaking about communion. In uh, John chapter 3, Jesus also mentioned that the bronze serpent on a pole lifted up as a remedy for those who had just been bitten by poisonous vipers. Just one look could save. And Jesus told Nicodemus, as I mentioned last week, that that would be uh, analogous to the gospel message. Look unto Christ, trust in him and you shall be saved. And so uh, these kinds of um, foreshadowings didn't stop there in Exodus. This whole scene in 1 Samuel also is pointing to things that we know about today. Uh, In fact, I think 1 Samuel has more in common with the book of Revelation and our Sunday studies than you would think. David is the anointed. The word for anointed is chosen or um, really Christ in the Greek. So David is the Christ. He is absolutely, that word would be lowercase c, of course. Saul is the usurper, the counterfeit. He is the antichrist. He has a crown. He rules, but he is uh, illegitimate. He performs signs and wonders, you know, but now his true colors come out in these last several chapters, we see just this jealous rage and wrath and uh, hatred and a, a murder, and now all of this is coming to the fore. You know, John said that the spirit of Antichrist is in the world always, and that there were many uh, in the world already and uh, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 3. And so we just see the anointed Christ picture of Jesus and the counterfeit usurper, the Antichrist, even in these chapters here. Uh, the gospel brought to you a thousand years before Bethlehem, courtesy of King Saul and elect King David. Now, Most of the kingdom of Israel is following Saul at this time, as they will follow the false Christ. Uh, But some lowly hurting uh, souls confess David as their king. There's about 400 of them at this point, and David and his lowly followers are hiding out in caves. They're hotly pursued and persecuted by this crazy king and the whole army. But uh, one day the tables will be turned. It's going to be a 10-year ordeal, as we've been talking about. Uh, Here in 1 Samuel 23, we're in the middle of those 10 
uh, very difficult years where the uh, David and his men are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed, just as the apostles in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 were written about. Now, one day the suffering servant, David, will become the glorious king. You see a parallel there as well. And here we go. Those who had been uh, first shall be last, and those who had been last shall be first. You know, Jesus said that several times, uh, Matthew 19 and verse 30. Here's a nice little paraphrase of what Jesus meant when he said, a lot of times, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Unbelievers who are used to preeminence and popularity and power and prestige who enjoyed the favor of this world at the expense of relationship with Jesus will one day find themselves at the bottom without power, without influence, and without recourse. On the other hand, believers used to being marginalized without power and without favor in this life because of their association with Jesus will one day find themselves on the top in the preeminent position with honor, power, authority, and with great favor. And so let's head out then to the caves and the thickets in the Judean wastelands with the fugitive elect King David and his lowly 400 misfit followers. You see, they're misfits because they don't fit into Saul's crazy world. They're not necessarily bad guys. They just don't fit into Saul's little kingdom. So here we go, 1 Samuel chapter 23, starting at verse 1, 1 through 6. When David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Calah and are looting the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, go, attack the Philistines and save Calah. But David's men said to him, here in Judah, we're afraid. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? Once again, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, go down to Keilah, for I'm going to give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Keilah, fought the Philistines and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Keilah. Now Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Keilah. All right, let's pause there. Roman numeral number one, coming down from the strongholds. Now, David isn't just a refugee who's cowering in those caves and sulking and feeling sorry for himself because he's a rescuer and he's learned, listen to this, he's learned how to serve God while he's hurting. And when things aren't going his way, he still knows he's on call. He's still serving the Lord. He hasn't checked out just because he's got a lot of turmoil in his own life. So David can't play it safe Uh, He's really wise. He loves the Lord. And you know what he's figured out? It's not all about him. Now, there's a city under siege here uh, by the bad boy terrorist Philistines who are occupying Israel's own land. And God directs David to rescue that city named Calah. 
Now, here in the opening verses, you'll notice something. Uh, God must first uh, direct David out of the strongholds where he was last chapter hiding. Remember, he was up in the strongholds at a place called Matsuda. It's really Masada. But in the Hebrew, it's, it's just confusing. But it's really, really close. And so uh, you'll remember there that he's up there. He's safe. He has no, no concerns because if you're coming to Israel, you'll see why. You saw this last week as well, that it's a real safe haven. But God, last chapter, sends a prophet to David, a prophet named Gad, who we will meet on several occasions, and says it's time for you to come within reach of God's people who are in need. It's time to come out of your safe place and put yourself at risk and come back to the Judean countryside. And so he does. And so thank you for that uh, slide there. And he comes down into Judea uh, countryside and, and, and he's within reach. And that's a good thing because if you want to be useful to God and effective in ministry, you've got to come down from the strongholds and the safe place. Now he's back in Judah. Like I said, he's back where he's needed. He's back where people are struggling. He's back into harm's way because Saul is lurking in that land for him. Now, Christians have their masadas, don't we? We insulate, we withdraw, we get uninvolved. Uh, There's passivity on moral issues especially hot potato issues that if it comes out of our mouth, we'll lose a friend or we'll lose a job or we'll create conflict at Thanksgiving. We don't want that. Or the gospel, um, passive with the gospel. So we play it safe because we want everyone to like us. Uh, We want to minimize criticism and risk uh, failure and conflict, and so we want to stay in our Masada, but God sends some prophet, and he says, you know what, you're out of reach, you're out of service, you're benched up there, yeah, you're safe, and I'm really glad that you're safe, and you've been wounded, and you can't figure out life, but you know what, it's time to come back, but, but that's where Saul is, yeah, I know, I can take care of you, but I need you connected again with people trusting me in your life, of service. You know, I guess we think nobody shoots at a target they can't see. Nobody will shoot at me if I'm not out there. But man, oh man, I get near a platform or I go into the Sunday school room or I sign up for this or that or I start talking and make myself, uh, I out myself at my job or my school or with my buddies. Well, now I'm a target. Come out of your little safe place, David. Come on down. I need a job to do. Amen? Well, you just got so quiet. It just just really got quiet there. Everybody was thinking. Um, So, yeah, no more flying under the radar, you know. We got to be available. Um, You could pick up and relocate to a less liberal, more Christian area in your frustration. And you could move to the Bible Belt in the south and grab all the salt and put it all over here instead of shaking it liberally into the places 
most needed in the world. You could do that. But then uh, if we all did that and we moved to the South, what about Adam Wilson who got saved here? What about Ronnie and Tammy Neuerberg who got saved here? How about David LaPierre who got saved here? How about John and Sylvia who got saved here and baptized here? If we were all in Birmingham or wherever there's a high concentration of Christians, um, the work of God would be hindered. So as always and sadly, putting self first, David didn't do that. But if we do, it shortcuts uh, God's agenda and short circuits his will and hinders his work. I do want to just close out that with a nice quote that I found. While there's a time for respite and finding shelter, and he will go into safe places again, the majority of Christian life means vulnerability and risk. To opt for playing it safe is to forfeit the blessing of making a difference with your life, being used by God. And not to mention eternal reward. There's no crown. There's no reward for playing it safe. But there is one for putting it all out there. So also notice with me the the Philistine terrorists are occupying uh, Israel. And uh, they're coming into Kela and stealing their harvested grains. And in verse 1, word is sent to David not to King Saul, because King Saul's a failure. He's all promises and there's no action. And so he's just self-absorbed. He's too busy uh, thinking about whether uh, more people like David than him. Uh, He's supposed to be protecting Israel. That was his job. That's what he promised to do. He's supposed to be defending Caleb from these terrorists and fighting the Philistines, but he's sitting under his tamarisk trees, flexing his muscles in the mirror and, and trying to figure out who's the fairest of them all. And the answer is King Saul, King Saul, of course. And so they look not to him. They come running and they don't go to the king. They say, hey, David, because I recognize even though David's not officially wearing the crown, they get it. David's God's man. And so they go to him and uh, look for help. And fortunately, guess what? He's not in a safe place. So he's available. He's available. So David's response is wonderful. He has a couple options here. And there are a couple options and lethal ones, I would say, for the less uh, spiritually mature. He avoids two dumb mistakes here in your text, right? Number one, he could have had the uh, uh, Coptan attitude. Listen, why are you asking me to save you guys? Uh, Saul's the king. It's his job, not my responsibility. So I got a lot on my plate right now. (laughs) I mean, I got these 400 guys. I got my uh, folks to worry about, and I got me and a crazy king. Go talk to Saul. Or he could have said, okay, let's go. Hey, I am the true king. After all, I can fix this. I'll step in and save the day, and I'll win favor with more people, and then they'll vote for me for king or whatever. That would be prayerless presumption on his part. Instead, in verses 2 and 4, David prays, Lord, what do you want me to do? 
Now he gets to inquire of the Lord in a real specific way because remember last chapter, Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, the high priest who was murdered, comes and in verse 6 it reminds you, oh by the way, he took the ephod from his murdered father, the ephod. I I got a picture of the ephod and the lights can go dim so you can see it better. It's that breastplate that the high priest would wear and then it would have jewels on it representing each tribe or state of Israel. And inside that pouch was what was called the umim and the thummim, right? And and so inside there's there was either a white stone or a black stone and and the two words mean Light and perfection. Now, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when the Hebrew went to Greek, the Greek-speaking world wanted the Old Testament, translated it into Greek, that's called the Septuagint. That has down revelation and truth that those two words mean. So what it was, was you could get a quick yes or no, or a guilty or not guilty, and you could get a little elaboration as well as the high priest would reach in to his heart and pull out discernment from the Lord. And this too is another type of Christian who is called in Second Peter chapter three a high that we are priests that we work to bring God near to people and people near to God, and that because we have the Holy Spirit, we reach into our hearts and are able to discern from the Lord His answers. Thank you for those uh, pictures there. F. B. Meyer says this about the Uman and the Thummim. Each child of God has his own set of Urim and Thummim stone, which is a conscience void of offense, a heart cleansed by the blood of Jesus, and a nature that is controlled and filled by the Holy Spirit. Now, in short, it's really the, the, those two stones were a way to represent getting a word from God. And so with everything I just mentioned, on top of having the word of God in most of your laps and in your hearts, one old school preacher put it this way. He said, well, this is how I understand those two stones. When I need to know God's will, I get out my Bible and I do a little using and thumbing through my Bible. And God always speaks to me, thumbing through my Bible I get to know God's will, and if more Christians did that, they would know it too. Now, David gets some answers. He gets a clear yes. He's all, should I go beat back the menacing Philistines? And the Lord says, yes, go save Kayla, the city, and attack them. But, and there always is a but. When the Lord calls you to do something, just know that the but is really right close behind And it isn't uh, the 400 fugitives uh, there are uh, not very happy. They're not on the same page. You know, they've got bad credit scores and they've got thin resumes. And so there's always an obstacle. But there's a reasonable response here. And here's what they're saying here in verse 3. Look, you know, David, cool idea. We're glad for you that God spoke to you this 
wonderful task to go do this mission, but it doesn't seem prudent. We're fugitives. We're ill-equipped. We're running for our lives. We're freaked out here in the caves, let alone going ill-equipped and outgunned to the Philistine bad boys. Doesn't seem smart. So here's what I really like about David. He, he seriously considers his men's hesitancy. He doesn't uh, he's unwilling to uh, impose his own ideas on them. And so he goes back to the Lord in verse 4, seeking confirmation. By the way, something God loves to always answer, uh, a prayer for confirmation. He says, Lord, are you sure about this? And the Lord says, yes, David, I'm sure. And so uh, I like what David Guzik says about this. David's men counseled him not to go, and we can understand their counsel. But we shouldn't agree with it. We should thank God that he made David captain over them in chapter 22 and verse 4. And that this wasn't a democracy for the sake of God's will and his plan for the city in trouble. Wisely, David takes the words from his men into great account and wrestles with their advice and seeks the Lord again and saw that in many ways they made sense and at the same time he knew it was an issue that had to be decided by the Lord. So God likes to confirm his word, especially when he's asked you to do something difficult or out there or risky. So David there in verse 5 and his 400 obey. They go to Keilah. God keeps his promise, imagine that, and the Philistines sustained heavy losses, the city was saved, and David and the 400, get this, are resupplied. They are resupplied, they get the plunder, the Philistine livestock. Here's what I like. I really like that the Philistines were looting the, the folks at Kela, the city of Kela. They were stealing and looting and plundering them, right? And so what happened to them? They got looted and plundered. And, and I love the Proverbs that says, uh, Proverbs 26 and verse 27, the one who digs a pit will fall into it himself. The one who rolls a stone, it will roll back on him. And, and that's it. just saw that. It's just how it is. And all of this, uh, all this wonderful stuff happens. Why? A few things. David was down from his safe place. He was within reach of needy people. He inquired of the Lord. He asked for confirmation from the Lord, and he obeyed in a less than optimal situation that didn't make sense all that much on the surface of things. He just trusted in God. Lives were saved. The good guys were strengthened. The bad guys were weakened and dealt with, and God was glorified. So let's go on here, 7 through 14. Saul was told now, David has gone to Kayla and he said, Oh, God has handed him over to me, for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. And Saul called up his forces for battle in the Hebrew. He, he got ready for war. <laughs> to go down to Kayla to besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar, the priest, Bring the ephod. David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Kela and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Kela surrender me to him? 
Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. Again, David asked, will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the, Saul, and the, and the Lord said, they will. So David and his men, about 600 now, grown from 400, now that is in Judah, probably we've got 200 guys joining, left Keilah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he didn't go there. David stayed in the desert strongholds back there now and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. So number one was down from the strongholds. Number two is going to be into a corner. So word gets back to King Saul. Yo, King Saul, your enemy David's done for. He's gone into a gated community. All right, so David is in a vulnerable place. And of course, it's obeying God has put him in this place, which when we obey God, we usually find ourselves in this vulnerable place. It happens time after time. Exodus 14, the Lord leads Israel into a cul-de-sac with the, with the Red Sea right there, dead end, and then Pharaoh's chariots coming. Now, just know this, when God leads into a dead end, be assured he has something spectacular in mind. And he always does, and he did here. He had a way of escape. Now, Kayla is a walled city, and David is trapped if Saul gets wind of where he's at, and he does. And so here comes Saul in verse 8, and he prepares his forces for war. He prepares an entire army for war against David, a man after God's own heart. Now, who do you think is behind this fury? The devil himself. If we kill David before he has Solomon or Nathan, because Mary comes through Nathan and Joseph is legally related to Solomon. Two sons, the genealogies fork at Nathan and, De and uh, Solomon. So verse 9, Saul's not the only one who has informants, so does David. So you see, you know, King Saul has wicked spies. He always knows what's going on. But King David has godly informants, and that's how I see it. Who's leaking the information to David so he can always stay ahead of this madman? Jonathan is still in Saul's army. So apparently Jonathan is texting David and he's always one step ahead. All right. Now, notice in verse 7, Saul is jazzed. Oh, God has handed David the enemy over to me. The dumbbell goes into a gated community with only one exit. So, you know, his eyes are rolled back. He has a wicked laugh. He's so happy and he's so pleased. And look at how crazy he is. God is working for me now. And now we're going to kill David in God's name. I love this. One writer. Godless people in rebellion who habitually reject truth live in a warped reality 
where friends become foes and foes become friends. And good is evil and evil is good. And the God, God is the bad guy and the devil is your very close ally. John 16 and verse 2, Jesus said, there'll come a time when men will be so spiritually insane they will kill you my appointed servants and apostles and think that they're rendering a service unto God that's deceived and Saul is deceived they Saul is flying upside down in a fog bank and he's praising God for sunny skies he's crazy so David is in the know he knows he's, he's been alerted somehow. Jonathan's sending smoke signals or whatever. Uh, dude, my dad's marching your way. Get out of there. And so David, his, his normal MO kicks in. When you don't know what to do, ask God. Uh, when in doubt, seek God out. When you're in a jam, get God's plan. Man. All right, now, notice David's approach here. He pours out his heart. Uh, Here's the situation. God, Saul's on his way to destroy this whole city to get me. And I've got a couple questions for you. Lord, notice David's approach. So he's asking a question. He's got two questions. If I stay put, will the citizens of Kayla, whom I just delivered, will they toss me out to save their own necks? And the Lord says, that's affirmative. <laughs> they will. And then I've got a little quote here. Unfortunately, gratitude and sense of obligation to those we're indebted to is not a common grace in the heart of the general populace. Question two, Lord, is Saul really coming? You know, I heard it through the rumor mill. I'm just asking someone who would know. Uh, is he really coming? And the Lord says, yeah, he is. So David and the now 600 men escape. Saul finds out, verse 13, he calls off the dogs. David's back in a safe place for now. Uh, day, uh, verse 14, day after day, Saul is pursuing him, but God, day after day, is protecting him. So verse 14 says, no problem there. Uh, verses 15 through 18. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, so he's in his safe place up in the desert hills there. He learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. So David's come, one, down from the stronghold, two, into, the, into a corner, and now three, alongside a friend. Now, Ziph is 15 miles southeast of Keilah, and that's where David is now. Sadly, it's the last time that Jonathan and David will meet. Now, who wouldn't? give anything for a friend like this guy, Jonathan. Wow. Uh, he risks his life to help his friend out, to be safe. He helps David find strength in God. Well, that's what our friends are for. 
to point us to God, to bring the word of God into play, to remind us about promises of God. He is positive and he speaks with faith. You're the next king. We heard what Samuel said. And then he says, my dad even knows this, which tells you a lot about this crazy king. He's doing all of this murder and mayhem with full knowledge. Jonathan plants an uplifting dream in David's heart. Man, someday you're going to be king. Guess who's going to be your first lieutenant? Me. Isn't that great? Could you just see the smile on both of their faces? And they know it's possible. And they're dreaming right there in the middle of all hell breaking loose. And he renews the promise of his loyalty. Now, uh, regarding the dream of being the first lieutenant kind of co-regency there, um, Jonathan has no idea he's going to die on a battlefield five chapters before David will become king. He dies in chapter 31 and verse 5. Five chapters later, David is king. But he dies a hero with his dream in his heart. You know, everybody wants to have a friend like Jonathan, but there are only a few people who want to be a friend like Jonathan. And by the way, you have a friend like Jonathan, don't you? You have a friend that sticks closer than a brother, better than Jonathan. All right, let's finish up verses 19 through the end of the chapter. The Ziphites, these are the people who live in the desert of Ziph. This is where the stronghold now, okay? Uh, The Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh on the hill of Hakalah, south of Jeshamon? Now, O king, come down whenever it pleases you to do so. And we will be responsible for handing him over to the king. Just in case you think we're siding with David. Verse 21, Saul replies, The Lord bless you for your concern for me. Go and make further preparation. Find out where David usually goes and who has seen him there. That they tell me he is very crafty. Just gag me. It's not there in the text, but really, wow, that's just so sickening and annoying. Verse 23, find out about all the hiding places he uses and come back to me with definite information. Then I'll go with you. If he's in the area, I will track him down among all the clans of Judah. So they set out, went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the desert of Ma'an, in the Arabah, south of Jeshimon. Saul and his men began to began the search, and when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the desert of Ma'an. When Saul heard this, he went into the desert of Ma'an, Ma'an and in pursuit of David. And Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. Now, as Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men ready to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land. Then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. 
That is why they call the place there Sela Hamalekoth. And David went up to there and lived in the strongholds once again at En Gedi, another stop along our way in the Israel tour. So we're finishing up here down from the strongholds into a corner alongside a friend and now in the midst of traitors. Uh, For every Jonathan, there's a Ziphite and many godly people have had their fair share of both. Now, um, the Ziphites betray David. The Ziphites, they're not into God's plan. They don't care about God's kingdom. They're not sympathetic to the cause of good, and there's nothing noble about them. They just want to protect their own lives. So in a preemptive move in verses 19 and 20, you have the Ziphites um, going to seek Saul out and to offer to give David into his hands at his convenience. So verses 19 and 20, they slather the flatter onto him and say, Oh, king, oh, benevolent king, we're so loyal to you and not David. That's why we keep calling you king. Um, can we, uh, how can we help your royal highness? And then uh, verses 21 through 23, I already expressed my own feelings about that. Saul's slick and seriously sickening speech of self-centered silliness. I just got carried away. I saw all the S's and I couldn't stop. God bless you, my children, for your selfless concern for my safety during this awful time in my life. If you wouldn't mind too terribly much Would you get his routine down? Get me a map with some specific coordinates and I'll take care of the rest. And bless you for your concern. God's faithful as usual to give his kids a heads up. And so he lets David know, hey man, you're in trouble again. And David starts running. Now, the word mountain in Bible always means large hill. And so... On, on this hill, we've got David and his men are on the same hill. And Saul and his men, and Saul and his men don't know how close they are. And, and David and his men know that they're right behind them around the, the ridge. And they, they just can't see each other. And so they're circling around the hill when out of nowhere, or I should say out of heaven, comes a signal to King Crazy Saul. Hey, man, listen, the the Philistines are raiding the entire country. We need you. He can't see. He doesn't know that David's right within reach. It says right before, just just a a little distance away, it would have all been over. But the Lord intervenes. It was so miraculous that the men there called that place, they made a memorial. There in your text, the place is called the Rock of Escape. Now, uh, really, just amazing. I'm thinking, you know, of David's prayers during this time in his life and God's answers. And And I just started typing, Dear Lord, You know I love you, and I'm trying hard to do the right thing. I'm not sinning against you. I'm obeying. I'm putting myself out there. I'm helping people you asked me to help. 
I'm seeking you. And yet the chaos in my life continues. The need continues. The desperation remains. I'm being pursued, slandered, unjustly persecuted. My life is upside down. Nothing makes sense. And I'm obeying you. Is this really your will for me? Dear beloved David, I'm preparing you for big things right now. You're learning to depend on me, to seek me and my will, to be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove, to be cautious in friendship and always discerning, to be on your toes. You're learning how to love like I love, how to show mercy and the value of forgiveness, to serve me even when it hurts and there's no light in sight. I'm growing you in your faith. Patience is being strengthened. Goodness is growing in you, and faith is deepening. I've kept you safe, and I will continue to do so. I've provided for your needs, and I will continue to do so. I know you're uncomfortable, but it won't always be this way. Soon you'll be complete, mature, lacking nothing. And these days will be a distant memory, not worth comparing to the glory that's ahead. So continue forward in faith, in hope, in love, and good deeds. Continue, be patient and assured of my faithful love for you. Let me close with an exhortation from 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter says, Brothers, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Resist him, standing firm in your faith because you know that your brothers throughout the whole world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. That's First Peter Chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love and how beautifully you weave together our lives with, uh, with, with the black colors and the, the, the bright colors and the good times and the bad times for truly you cause all things to work together for good. Because we love God and called according to your purpose, we thank you, God, for your great peace, your wonderful provision, and how you stick with us through the valley of the shadow. We're so thankful to know you. We commit ourselves to you once again tonight in Christ's name. Amen.